How is everyone? Good, good. Hey, um, we've been pushing this. If you've been coming to the church any length of time, this is our third year of doing this, but we're, um, we're doing our Refine Leadership Conference. It's uh, actually coming up at the end of this month. It's a Thursday and a Friday. It's the 20th and 21st. Um, now, this isn't like a money-making thing or anything for us. We will lose significant amounts of money on this, but uh, it's $55 to go. Um, we have several speakers, uh, Bob Parks, Peter Demas, myself, um, Abby, who's one of the, uh, uh, the co-pastors up at the church in New Hampshire that we support. Uh, she's going to come down. Um, one of my favorite documentarians, a guy named Eric Holmberg, is going to come and, and teach on culture. Uh, gosh, we have Dr. Robert Dudley, who, who's a great scientist, and he sits on the board at Pepperdine. He comes to church here. Um, he's going to speak. We have a lot of really, really great leaders and speakers. If you have a call of leadership, I'm not just talking about in ministry, if you're a manager, if you're a boss, if you're a business owner, if you just want to be a leader in the future, if, if you feel like God's calling you to do that, it's two days, it's excellent, uh, it's going to be a really, really good time. So anyways, these are out in the foyer if you want to grab these, fill them out, and uh, you can give those to Sarah Pierce and she'll take care of you. It's really, really good. I'm really excited about it this year. Okay, if you haven't been with us, we're in the Gospel of John, okay? And so if you just started coming to the church, we're about to get kind of into like our sweet spot, kind of what I feel like our church does uh, really, really well. It's kind of at the core of who we are, and that's teaching whole books of the Bible. So we took a break last week, and we had a baptism service, which, by the way, we baptized 77 last weekend. That's good. That's a good thing. And um, that was really, really exciting and really, really cool. And then the two weeks before that, we did John chapter 1. We broke it up, okay, because it's kind of dense. And the, the, the second lesson of, of chapter one, this is what we talked about. We asked, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And then what does it mean to be a witness of Jesus Christ? Those are kind of same thing, but different things too. We follow him, but what does it mean to share Christ? What does it mean to be a witness, uh, someone that testifies about Christ? We talked about that, okay? Now here's what we're gonna talk about today. And if you've never been to the church, we're a very, I, I would like to think, a very open, honest church, right? There's not a whole lot of things that we do uh, exceptionally well, but one thing we do well is we're genuine, we're authentic, we're real, we're honest, okay? So today we're gonna be those things. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna kinda look at ourselves, we're gonna talk about the fact that Jesus examines our hearts and he examines our minds and he knows our motives, so we need to be honest with ourselves and ask ourselves some hard questions. We need to examine our hearts, we need to examine our minds, and we need to ask ourselves, have we taken responsibility for our thoughts and our actions? Have we owned what we think and what we do? Have we owned those things? Okay? So a little preface to today. <laughs> um, the last three services have been fantastic. They've been really, really good. And uh, God's doing something to me right now. It's the 11 o'clock, so there's, uh, I have nothing to do after this, so... Um, I'm going to take up more of your time probably. Uh, but God's been doing something to me. And one of the things that God's been doing to me, guys, and this is going to sound funny, me up here and you out there, um, this is not the pinnacle of our faith, the weekend service. The pinnacle of our faith, we were not told to build big churches. We were told to baptize, make disciples, and teach. And so this is a part of what we do, but God's working on me. We've got to start going out and building more relationships with the world around us. We've got to start doing this. And so I might get a little spirited today. The, the Pentecostal in me might come out a little bit, uh, so bear with me. And, um, and so I just, I don't know, I just feel like the Lord's really working me over, and I feel like he's going to start working our church over a little bit, and I'm excited about that. Uh, that excites me. 
Isn't it cool to know that the creator of the universe still like digs his hands into you sometimes, right? That's cool. And so it's refreshing. Um, on a complete side note, before I get into the, the, the scripture here, uh, Thursday night at 6.30 over in Corey's area, the student center, the old sanctuary, um, I'm going to teach Josh and I. He's just going to be there to field the questions that I don't want to answer. But uh, Josh and I are going to be over there. I'm going to teach a lesson on the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the operation of the Holy Spirit, and the abuse of the Holy Spirit. If you want to come out to that, there's no child care or anything like that. It's just going to be a very casual. I'm going to do a short lesson. I'm going to open it up to Q&A, and we're going to kind of see where the Lord takes us. But I think it's time that I start addressing that a little bit more, okay? So if you want to come out Thursday night, 6.30, I'll be over there. Uh, we'll make some coffee and, and hopefully not argue too much. So uh, we'll do that, okay? All right. Today we get to talk about alcohol and Jesus kicking over tables in church. <laughs> so let me pray, because <laughs> obviously we need it, right? You know? <laughs> that was a good start. This is the service my mom watches in St. Louis, you know? So uh, that was a good start. So... Um, let me pray, and uh, we'll dive into this, and I think you guys are really going to like chapter two. If you have your Bibles, fourth book of the New Testament, second chapter. If you don't, uh, the YouVersion app, you can download that, and it has all the scripture and notes on it, and you should have notes in front of you. So let me pray. Lord Jesus, uh, you've been very faithful the last three services, God, and I know you're going to be faithful in this service too. Lord, open up our ears today to hear what you have to say. And open up our eyes so we see what you're doing. Oh, God, that's my prayer. Open up our ears today so we can hear what you're saying. Open up our eyes so we can see what you're doing. Lord, we pray that you bless every church in our town, bless every pastor, bless every uh, nonprofit that's advancing your kingdom, God. Lord, let us advance your kingdom. Let us advance your name, not ours. Lord, we love you and we thank you, God. Bless us today, God, not because we've deserved it, Lord, but because you're a gracious, good father that wants the best for his children. So God, speak to us today. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're gonna have fun with this, guys. Chapter two of John. Um, this is starting about three days after Jesus was baptized in chapter one, called his disciples, and now we're gonna see him start doing ministry. Here we go. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. What, what has this concern of yours have to do with me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Do whatever he tells you, Mary said to the servants. Now six stone water jars had been set there by, uh, for Jewish purification. Each one contained about 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw some out, take it to the chief servant, and they did that. Okay, so like I said, Jesus had recently been baptized in chapter one. He had picked up his disciples, and now he's invited to a wedding in the hometown of one of his disciples, Nathan, Nathaniel, one of the 12. So they're at this wedding festival, right? Okay, wedding festivals were a big deal in Jesus' time. I know weddings are a big deal now, but we usually have one day and then the couple goes off to a honeymoon, right? And this day, they would take an entire week and they would have somewhere in the neighborhood of 2,400 to 2,500 guests. Imagine the dad paying for that, right? All these guests would come through 
They would eat, they would drink wine, they would party for a whole week solid. Now, if the host of the wedding ran out of food or wine, that was a big deal. It was a social embarrassment. You wouldn't have been able to walk around town for a couple of weeks because people would be talking about you. You'd be labeled as a bad host. It was a big deal if you ran out of food or if you ran out of wine, okay? So there's the context. So as they're eating at the wedding banquet, Mary, the mother of Jesus, notices that they've ran out of wine. Maybe she catches a glimpse of the kitchen and they're frantically you know, looking around. There's no wine. So when Jesus' mother realizes this, she told Jesus, because Jesus didn't already know, you know, so told Jesus, and his response is confusing. I don't know about you, but if I would have looked at my mom and said, what concern is this of me, woman? Um, that wouldn't have gone over very well, right? But Jesus looks at his mom and says, what concern is this for me, woman? And he didn't mean that rebuking. Some people think that. I don't think he was being sarcastic or mean to his mother. What he was probably saying was, do you want me to take care of it? Or how do you want me to take care of it? What do you want me to do about it? And so they have this conversation and obviously he's gonna you know, kind of submit and obey what his mom wants. And so she turns around to the servants and she says something extremely profound, but I'll get to that here in a second. Now, the reason why Mary even brought this to Jesus's attention is Mary knew who Jesus was. Now, we don't often think about this. If you go back and study it, Mary got pregnant by the Holy Spirit. You know, she conceived a son even when she was a virgin. And so Mary became pregnant when she was about 14 years old. Now, this isn't a time when they made, you know, reality TV shows about teens getting pregnant. It was a big embarrassment for a 14-year-old to get, to get pregnant out of wedlock. So for 30 years, 30 years, this woman had walked around and been publicly shamed because of what had happened to her. Now, we don't know how Jesus acted with his mother those first 30 years. There's very little in the Bible about kind of those middle adolescent years. We don't know if Jesus had performed miracles in private or if he had said prophetic things. We don't, we don't really know that. But we know that when he turned water to wine, this was the first public display that Jesus had the authority of God. This was the first public display that he was divine and that the Holy Spirit was with him, okay? So it might've been a little personal for Mary, going back to this thought. Again, imagine there's this opportunity for a, for a miracle to be done. She knows who Jesus is. For 30 years, she's been publicly shamed, right? But when he looks at her, when Jesus looks at Mary, he knows her heart right? He knows that she would love to be vindicated publicly, that she's not, pardon my language, she's not a whore. She wasn't just a teen that got pregnant before she was married. That's not what she was. She was following the Holy Spirit's instruction. She would love to be vindicated. But Jesus looks at her and says, mom, it's not time yet. The hour has not come yet. Now listen, here's something we see in Mary. And Mary was a good, righteous woman. That's why God chose her to give birth to, to, to Christ. But what we see in Mary is this, is Mary isn't much different from us in a lot of ways. Every single Christian in this room, and if you're not a Christian yet, you will experience this. All of us, we think that God is just. We think that God is powerful. We think God is capable. And we even think God is willing. But we do not trust God's timeline. God, I need this now. And sometimes God says, not now. 
God, I need this. I want this. It has to be this. It has to be now. I have to move here or get this job or achieve this goal or whatever it is on my timetable. And we have a hard time trusting when God says the hour is not here yet. And that's what he had to do to Mary. That's a tough lesson. I don't know if you've been there before, but so many times I know God can do everything. I just don't always trust him with when. I need to trust him because he's sovereign. He's outside of time. He sees everything that's going on. Okay, next part. So when the chief servant tasted the water after it had become wine, he didn't know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom and he told him, everyone sets out the the fine wine first, then after people have drunk freely, the inferior. That's when they bring out that wine in a box, right? But you have kept the fine wine until now. So Jesus performed this first sign in Cana of Galilee, and he displayed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, guys, this is something extremely important. If you want to get to the core, the crux of what a follower of Jesus is to do, it's simply this. Mary says, do whatever he tells you to do. Do whatever he tells you. Mary's faith was strong. Listen, it's in bold for a reason. Jesus could do anything necessary to resolve the situation as long as the servants were obedient. Let that soak in for a second. It's the same thing with us. Jesus will never let you down. He will always come through. He will always provide. He will always be there for you. But it is completely contingent on if the servants are obedient. If the servants are obedient. So, do what he tells you to do. They did, and we're about to see the fruit of that. So here's the thing. Imagine if you're one of these servants, right? Your job is on the line. Your livelihood is on the line. Your reputation, your social status, everything on the line. You are pouring water into these basins. That's what they're doing. The servants are pouring water in. Jesus tells the banquet workers, pour water in the jars. They pour water in the jars. And then he says, draw some out. You know what went in. He said, draw some of that out and take it to the host. Take it to your boss, right? That's what Jesus essentially says. And so what happens? It's safe to say they poured the water in, someone drew it out. Imagine being that guy, right? I don't know if they like paper, rock, scissored, who gets to take it to the boss. But one guy puts it in and he knows it's water and somewhere between the kitchen and the banquet table, something happened. Something happened. And he sits it down and a miracle had taken place. Imagine the faith of the servant who had to put everything on the line for this miracle to take place, okay? So we get to talk about alcohol. That's fun. It's always fun. People argue about this. So when this, <laughs> when this miraculous thing took place, right, some Christians believe, I don't know, Jesus just made Welch's grape juice. He didn't make real wine, right? So he just made this non-alcoholic grape juice. Um, getting into the Bible, uh, I'll be honest with you because we're an honest church, right? I do not drink alcohol. That's not because I believe alcohol altogether is evil. I don't drink it because I have an addictive past and I've gotten in a lot of trouble by drinking alcohol. So my wife and I stay away from it. Now, when you get into the Bible, I cannot get up here in front of you and tell you that drinking alcohol is a sin. I can't prove that to you in the Bible. It's not in there. Nowhere in the Bible. In fact, Paul even tells his protege, Timothy, every once in a while, you should have a glass of wine for your stomach issues, right? So if you have a 
glass of beer with your pizza when you watch the Super Bowl or a glass of wine when you're sitting there with your, uh, eating dinner with your wife. I can't tell you there's anything wrong with that because the Bible doesn't say that. But, I'm gonna get on a soapbox here for a second. The Bible is completely clear, crystal clear about moderation and sobriety. I can throw you out a couple. 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober and vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion seeking those he can devour. That's what 1 Peter 5, 8 says. Galatians 5, Proverbs 20, Ephesians 5, 1 Thessalonians 5, and there's a lot more than that. And so whenever I hear young Christians bring up the argument of marijuana, let's go there, guys. Used to do a lot of drugs, smoked a lot of weed. I've never smoked any weed that didn't get me high, right? That's the point of smoking weed. The point of smoking weed is getting intoxicated. And the Bible is crystal clear that intoxication is a sin. So whenever I hear Christians say legalize it, I'm like, wow, let's just propagate sin more. Let's make a dumber nation. That's what we need. You ask anyone, anyone that's done hardcore narcotics, ask them what the first drug is that they ever tried. We used to have a saying with my friends that did a lot of drugs when I was doing those things. Not everyone who smokes marijuana does heroin, but everyone who does heroin smokes weed. It's true, think about it. It's a gateway and it's not good and it intoxicates us and it's a sin. Same thing with getting drunk, it's a sin. And so the symbol, off the soapbox. Okay, so the symbolism of the wine running out, this was no small miracle. Jesus's first miracle alludes to the greater purpose of why Jesus was even on earth. Listen, just as the wine was running out at the wedding, humankind's relationship, fellowship, the celebration of God and man together had expired. It had run out. We were separated from our husband, if you will. That started way back in the book of Genesis, right? In chapter three, there started to be this separation between God and man. And so when sin entered into the world, the celebration ceased, just like this wedding that we're reading about right here. But Jesus came into the picture, not just to fix this one wedding, but to fix the whole communion between God and man. We had run out of spiritual wine and Jesus came to replenish that, to fix that. Okay, so they draw out the wine, right? Takes it to the chief servant, the boss, and I'm sure the guy just kind of lets go and steps back a little bit. He's already like putting his resume on monster. I mean, he's, he's like stepping away from it, right? And when the host tastes the water that had turned to wine, he says something amazing. He steps back and he goes, oh my goodness. Usually at parties, they bring out, listen, this is so important. They bring out the good stuff first. And then when everyone gets a little tipsy, they bring out the garbage. Isn't this the way sin works? At first, the sex is good. The alcohol, the getting drunk, the getting high, all of that is really good at first. The material possessions, the greed, all of it feels good at first. This is the way the devil operates. It feels good at first, but then when you're a little inebriated, when your senses are a little bit dulled, you're left feeling wanting, you're left feeling unfulfilled, you're left feeling cheap. This is how sin works, always. The devil entices us with the good stuff. Go back to Genesis 3. If you wanna know how the devil operates, he doesn't kick the door down flaming with horns, being like, worship me. You know, that's not how he works. It says in chapter three, he's subtle. He's more subtle than any other beast in the field. He works 
and subtleties. And so he comes in beautifully and enticing and he leaves you feeling awful. Guys, I'm gonna get all preachy here for a second. The devil's number one objection, uh, objective in your life is to absolutely destroy you. He hates you, hates you because God loves you. And they are at war with each other and he hates you and he wants to destroy you. Moving on. So two things happen, right? The disciples, they're sitting back, they're watching this whole thing play out. They saw the miraculous thing take place. Two things happen. One, God, I'm sorry, Jesus revealed his glory, which means he revealed that he was the savior. This miracle was the first public display where people were like, whoa, that's the guy. And so the disciples saw and they were confirmed in their spirit. And the second thing that happened is they said, we are completely in. We are in. We're going to go to the ends of the earth with this guy. So to get more into the symbolism, here's what was taking place in this water to wine thing. There was a lot of symbolism. The jars that they used to do the water to wine were traditionally used for the ceremonial hand washing at the temple. And so what was going on is Jesus was taking the Old Testament way of doing things and he was exchanging it for the new way of doing things. He was taking the old jars and using them for a new purpose. The old way was being fulfilled and a new way is beginning. So this is no small miracle because these jars that they used to continually wash their hands before they went into the temple reminded everyone that stepped into the temple that they were dirty. It reminded everyone that stepped into the temple that they were, they were less than perfect, that they were uh, broken, that they were messed up. And when Jesus takes that and fills, he replaces the temple cleansing water with soul-saving wine, something that tastes good, something that is fruitful, something that is different. He replaces the old way and he satisfies us permanently. He takes care of our debt. He forgives us of our sin, okay? It's gonna become even more clear when we talk about the crucifixion. Let's talk about Jesus getting angry here for a minute. So after this, after they left the wedding, he went down to Capernaum together with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. Let me pause there for a second. Uh, if anyone was raised Catholic, you were raised to believe that the Virgin Mary stayed a virgin until the, till, until the day she died, that she never had sex with Joseph, that they never had any more kids. Right there is one part in the, in the New Testament, there's several, that says that he literally had brothers. Jesus had brothers and sisters. He had biological, a biological family around him. That's what that's mentioning right there. So the Jewish Passover was near. So Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple complex, he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves. He also found the money changers sitting there. And after making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple complex with their sheep and ox. He also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, Get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Okay, so in chapter 12, right? Jesus is essentially, this is where he's like kicking off his, his uh, Israel tour, right? He's about to go out on the road. He's about to hit all these different towns. He's about to spread the news of the kingdom of God. So he's gonna leave the comforts of his hometown, He's going to leave the comforts of his family, and he's going to take his 12 disciples and other followers, and they're going to go out. That's what's going on in uh, verse 12. So one of the first places they go, 
is Jerusalem. Now, if you know anything about Jerusalem in Jesus' time, Jerusalem would have been like our New York City, right? It would have been like the hub of culture. It would have been the busiest city. It would have been very metropolitan and, and, and art and culture and all these things kind of flooded out of Jerusalem. It was also the center of religious activity. So people from all over the area, all over the Middle East would come into Jerusalem and they would worship. So Jerusalem was already busy. And when Jesus and his followers went in in April, it was the week of the Passover. So it was the busiest week and the busiest city in this area, okay? Now, if you don't know what Passover is, it was a week-long celebration. It was a celebration of the Exodus, the book of Exodus, when Moses, through the power of God, liberated all the Jews and put them into the promised land, okay? So they're celebrating for a week. So Jesus goes in. And at the center of Jerusalem was the temple. And outside of the temple complex was the temple courtyard. So Jesus goes into the temple courtyard, into the complex, and he sees in an area that should have been reserved for prayer and worship had become a marketplace. Now, before we jump the gun and like walk into Lifeway and start overturning tables, right? Or going into churches and kicking over their book stands, which we have one out there. If you do that, that's not what this is referring to. This is what it's talking about. People would come into Jerusalem from all over, right? From different countries, all over the place. They would come into town, and in order to buy things, they would have to do an exchange, a currency exchange. Just like if you go to Mexico, you got to get pesos. Like if you go to Russia, you got to get rubles. Whatever the case may be, you have to exchange your currency, right? So there's nothing wrong with that. The other thing that the travelers would have to do is they would have to buy animals to sacrifice in the temple. They couldn't bring them with them. So when they got to Jerusalem, they would buy doves or oxen or sheep or whatever they'd have to buy to sacrifice in the temple. Nothing wrong with that either. What made Jesus so mad is the area that should have been reserved for prayer and worship, the marketplace, the money, the commercialization of their faith took precedent over prayer and worship. That's what made Jesus mad. It's not that they were selling things. It was that they were, they were taking precedent over what the church should really do. Guys, have we, not, have we not learned anything from this? We're still doing this. And so what has happened is we've made this commercialization of the church to where promoting pastors and promoting books and promoting all these different things has taken precedent, has become more important than prayer and community and service and worship. That's what Jesus was upset about. And so he comes in and he looks at all this. The temple courtyard would have been roughly about the size of this room. So pretty good area, right? So he comes into the temple courtyard and he's over there making a whip and the disciples are probably sitting there going like, what is Jesus doing? And he's like, I'm about to show you what I'm doing, right? And he's making this whip. And all of a sudden, one 30-year-old man goes into the temple courtyard Imagine this scene, guys. He comes in and he starts like whipping the oxen and like birds are flying over the place and sheep are running out and he's spilling over the money changers' money and kicking over tables. I mean, it was probably nuts, right? And now what some Christians do is we think we can also go do that and that's not the response that Christians are supposed to have. Jesus could do it because he was Jesus, right? It was his place. It was his house of worship. He had the authority to do that. Though we shouldn't act like that, though, don't go into Lifeway and kick over their stands. That's not a cool thing to do. Though we shouldn't act like that, listen, we should be greatly bothered with the marketing and commercialization of our faith. You guys are awake out there, right? 
four of you. It, we should be bothered by the commercialization of our faith. Guys, let's just talk real, right? It should bother us. I doubt the Apostle Paul would have Paul.com. And so whenever pastors have their name.com, I'll just be honest with you, I don't like that. I don't think that's the way we should be promoting the faith. It should be all about him and it shouldn't be about us, but we've made it about the advancements of denominations and buildings and charismatic speakers and Jesus just is kind of off in the background, you know, and we hope we get to him eventually. That's what we've done. And quite frankly, guys, that should upset us a little bit. So imagine the disciples watching this take place. I find it humorous, right? They just saw this loving guy turn water to wine so this family wouldn't be embarrassed. Then the next place they go, he just goes nuts on all these money changers and there's people in this courtyard and they're sitting in the back and, you know, I don't know, Peter leans over to Nathaniel and goes, hey, you remember when the psalmist wrote, zeal for his house will consume me? And Nathan's like, dude, look, you know, like Jesus is driving everyone out of the temple courtyard. Imagine seeing this. So there's a miraculous element to that as well. I'm 37 years old and I'm, I'm not a small guy. I couldn't run into a place like this where people are protecting their businesses and there's oxen and sheep and doves. I couldn't drive all those people out physically. So a 30 year old man who probably isn't my size walked in there and did this. Now that's a pretty miraculous thing. He went in and he had the authority and, 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 and he drove all these people out. Okay, so talking about the commercialization of the church, talking about the church as a marketplace, talking about books and CDs and all these different things that the church does now. What comes into this is we must balance out all these things with common sense. There's nothing wrong with writing books and selling books. We do that. We've bought books. I'm glad people are writing books and selling books. There's nothing wrong with those things. We have to use common sense and balance. And as we dive deeper into the book of John, you're gonna see that Jesus Christ was not only divine, holy, he was balanced, and he was practical. So as Christians, we are also called to be holy, balanced, and practical. I'll tell you something else that we're called to be as Christians, and a lot of people debate this and argue this. Being angry is not a sin. We're to be slow to anger, we're to be gracious, and we're to be patient with people. But listen, the church needs to start getting mad about some things. We need to get mad that more social justice isn't done. We need to get mad that people are irreverent. We need to get mad that people teach bad theology. There are certain things that need to make us angry. We have been docile for too long. There is a righteous anger that we need to have. It should make us mad sometimes to see that some denominations are $12 billion in debt to buildings and they're not doing anything for the homeless in their city. That is a problem. And that should make some of us mad. You don't have to clap for that. But my goodness, we also need to get to where we know how to judge properly. Well, only God can judge me, says the great philosopher Kanye West, right? But like, <laughs> if there's one guy I could box, if I just had the opportunity, I probably shouldn't have said that, but uh, that'd be a good fundraiser, right? <laughs> no, don't clap for that either. That's not Christian-like. <laughs> just saying though. Anyways. We often say, you can't judge me, only God can judge me. Matthew 7, 2, right? Judge not, lest ye be judged. We use the King James on that one, right? Can't judge, judge not, judge not. The Bible doesn't say that at all. The Bible says you're not to prejudge. The Bible says that you're not supposed to judge based solely on appearances, but you're supposed to look at the heart like God looks at the heart. 
In John 7, Jesus actually says, judge with righteous judgment. If you're a parent in this room, you've made six billion judgments. You've judged who your kids are gonna hang out with. You've judged what they're gonna watch on television. You've judged who you're gonna bring into your home and let have influence in your sphere. You've made those judgments and you're supposed to make those judgments. The Bible gives us the ability and the Holy Spirit gives us the ability to judge righteously and to judge wisely. That's how we're called to do. There are times we need to be angry and there are times we need to make judgments. And the Bible clearly lays those things out. Okay, next part. Man, I get real preachy on that. So the Jews replied to him, what sign of authority will you show us for doing these things? The Jews were not just the Jewish people. These are like the religious leaders. Jesus answered, destroy this sanctuary and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore, the Jews said, this sanctuary took 46 years to build. You're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the sanctuary of his body. So when he raised from the dead, that's after his crucifixion, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the statement that Jesus had made. While he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many trusted in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Guys, listen to these last two verses. Let me read that one one more time. While he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many trusted in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all and because he did not need anyone to testify about man for he himself knew what was in man. What that last part says, and I'll talk about this here again in a minute. That last part says that the people started trusting Jesus because they saw miracles, but it says that Jesus didn't trust them. They believed in him he wasn't so sure about them yet. Now, I'll get to that here in a minute. So the Jewish people, 1 Corinthians 1.22 says that the Jewish people and especially their leaders always wanted a sign. So Jesus is gonna give them a sign, but not the kind that they expected. Jesus said, tear down the temple and I'll build it back up in three days. Now they thought he was talking about King Solomon's temple that took 46 years. It actually took about 70 years, 66 years, I think exact, to build. It wasn't done yet, but they thought they were talking about that temple. Ironically enough, that temple was going to be destroyed four years after it got completed. But anyways, they thought he was talking about the big temple. He wasn't. He was actually talking about the true temple, which was himself. So there's another big thing going on, like the water to wine, how the new is replacing the old. Jesus came to replace the old temple and he became the place of sacrifice. He became the place of worship. And we, when we become believers, we become the temple of God that he rests and resides and abides in us. So the tearing down of the temple that he was referring to was not about the building. Nowhere in the Bible is the church ever referred to as a building, not in the New Testament. Jesus changed all that. So he's saying, I'm not talking about this temple. I'm talking about this temple. He's talking about the crucifixion, that they will tear down this temple and in three days he will be raised back in a glorified, perfect state. That's what he was talking about. That's his mission. And so what we see here is the beginning of many, many times in the gospels where people misunderstand the words of Jesus. We're still misunderstanding the words of Jesus. All throughout John, 
Jesus' words are taken out of context or they are just completely misunderstood. Listen, this is so important. It's not because the people hearing Jesus were unintelligent. They were very intelligent. There are people today who have multiple PhDs who understand quantum physics and astrophysics and who are brilliant, brilliant people, but they cannot wrap their brain around this book. And it's not because they're not smart. It's because they're unwilling to hear something that contradicts their own truth. This book, let me just break it down to you. This book is extremely offensive to anyone who thinks that their ways are superior to God's. This book is extremely offensive to anyone who is self-centered and says, I will choose my own path. This book is extremely offensive. If you're in this room and you think your ways are the best ways, you control your own fate, you are your own person, no one's gonna judge me, no one's gonna correct me, no one's gonna, this book will tick you off. You will not like that. And so as Christians, if you're in here and you're a Christian, read the book of Revelation, the first three chapters. In the book of Revelation, Jesus says to the churches, he says, for those that have ears to hear, listen. For those that have ears to hear, listen. So we need to be asking ourselves as Christians, are we listening? As believers, we must seek the spirit of, we must seek the spirit and we must ask for the gifts of discernment and wisdom. I'm going to talk about those Thursday, the gifts of discernment and wisdom. We must be willing to be corrected. We must be willing to be instructed by his word and by the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Listen, don't leave a church when you start feeling convicted. God is trying to shine a light on parts of your heart and your mind that need to be changed, not because he's trying to condemn you. Jesus doesn't condemn. He came to save us from condemnation and he saves us from condemnation by convicting us, by showing us what needs to be changed. So don't run away from scrutiny. Welcome scrutiny. Welcome the scrutiny of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Welcome the scrutiny of the Bible. Welcome the scrutiny of the Holy Spirit. See, what happened is this, guys, and we're doing it again today. The Jews placed more value on the temple and on the religious practices than they did on listening to the Holy Spirit, investing in people outside of the temple, and even in God himself. Corey, that doesn't happen today. Have you driven around and looked at our buildings? Have you driven around? Have you seen? When we drive through a town and we have 30 million dollars, man, I'm just, I'm, I'm, whatever, we're just gonna go there, right? When you see all the money that is invested in land and buildings in this town and you see people begging on every single street corner, there's something amiss. There's something that's not, when we don't have a homeless shelter in our town, but we have 30 million dollar buildings, something's not, something's not connecting, something's not right. So what John focuses on more than the miracles, the signs, the wonders, is John focuses on the message. John spends more time talking about the message of Christ more than the miracles he performed. He does talk about the miracles, but he talks about the miracles because those miracles, the saving, uh, I'm sorry, the uh, sign miracles, were ones that brought people into a relationship with Jesus. And here's a little side note. Jesus never performs any miracles that don't have a purpose. They all have a purpose. And some of the disciples didn't fully recognize the purpose until after it had happened. So here's the important part, guys. And the reason why I'm screaming and getting all like sassy up here today is Jesus 
it says in verse 24, would not entrust himself to the people. What this statement means in verse 24, those last couple of verses, what this means is this, is there was a large group of people, listen guys, think of Southern Christian culture. There was a large group of people who believed that Jesus was the son of God, but had no desire to be in a deep relationship with him. And what Jesus was saying is, you may trust that I'm the son of God, but I don't trust you. That's what he was saying. What we've done, guys, I've already dug a hole, so I'm just gonna dive in now. What we've done in Southern Christian culture, and I love the South and I love the churches in our town. I love, I love the different denominational churches. I'm not trying to knock on the Southern Baptist church. I was at a big one the other day and had a great time at Long Hollow Baptist Church. That's a big old church, by the way. Hanging out over there, it was great. But here's something we've done in the South. We've done this whole sinner's prayer thing for decades and decades and decades where a 12-year-old or a 14-year-old or a 30-year-old or whoever comes to the front, we make them repeat this kind of stock prayer and we're like, boom, they're done. And just because one believes that God is in heaven, even if one believes that Jesus died on the cross and rose again, does not make you saved. Do you wanna know how I believe that or why I believe that? Because James said, the devils in hell believe there is one God and they're still in hell. That's what James said. So simply to know that he's up there is not a saving knowledge of Jesus. The only way we are saved is we have a relationship with the Father. We have a relationship with God. That's how we're saved. So when we say, I trust that God is the Savior, I trust that Jesus died for my sins, that's great if you trust that, but does he trust you? I believe, that's great. Do you follow? Because only those that follow him are saved. Man, it's super quiet in here right now, guys. And I know I'm like busting a lot of theological bubbles right now, but I'm telling you, God's doing something to me, man. If we're just walking around as nominal Christians saying, I'm a Christian because I got a shirt that says so. And if we don't talk and live and walk and think and act more and more like Christ as our time goes on, we do not know the Father. We do not know the Savior. To simply say that Jesus is in heaven right now and he's in control does not save me. I have to live in such a way. Corey, how dare you? I'm just gonna quote the Bible again in James. You tell me you believe, James said, I will show you that I believe by the works that I do. I will show you. Now, let me reaffirm this even more. Let me use the Bible again more. In Jeremiah, in the Old Testament, this is what God says. I, the Lord, search all hearts and examine secret motives, and I give all people their due rewards, not just because they believe. I give them all due rewards according to what their actions deserve. But I believe, awesome, are you following? Because even the devils in hell believe that there is one God, and they shake and tremble. They know who he is because he kicked them out of heaven. They know who, they know who he is, but they don't follow him. Therefore, they're not saved. So look, we're gonna be honest. We're gonna ask some questions, okay? When we study the Bible, when we read about Mary and Peter and Nathan, when we read about all the different people that we talk about, David, all these different people in the Bible, the heroes of our faith, all of these people were real people that struggled with real insecurities, struggled with real sin, struggled with real problems. What they are is they are living portraits of humanity. Humanity hasn't changed any, guys. 
Back then, they didn't have cell phones to look at porn, but they still struggled with lust. Lust isn't a new thing. Infidelity is not a new thing. Divorce isn't a new thing. None of these things, social, uh, uh, social problems and racism and hatred, none of these things are new things. We've been doing this for a long time. That's why the Bible addresses all these things. Humans haven't changed much. Solomon says there's nothing new under the sun. It's the same thing in different ways, right? Generation to generation to generation. So we have to start asking ourselves, if God examines my, my mind, if God knows my secret motives, and if God examines my heart and is he's gonna give me rewards based on the actions of my mind and my heart, if we know these things, we need to start asking ourselves some tough questions. The first one is this, where have we looked for answers? Again, I've already dug a hole, so I'm just gonna keep on going. If you're looking for your answers on Fox News, you're not gonna find it. If you're looking for your answers on CNN or MSNBC, if you're looking for your answers in a man or a woman that's running for president, if you're looking for your answers in legislation, if you're looking for your answers in a charismatic speaker, if you're looking for your answers in a fancy new temple, if you're looking for it in all these different ways, you're gonna be deeply disappointed. So I have to ask, where do we go to find the solution? Here's a good place to start. Where do we go? If we're honest, guys, I'll be honest with you. When I struggle with depression, which I deal with that, when I struggle with depression or anxiety, I don't always go to the Lord for answers. Sometimes I go to things that I shouldn't go to. Now, once we determine, and if we're honest with ourselves, where do we go? Where do we go when the crap hits the fan? Where do we go when life gets tough? Where do we go when our marriage is on the rocks? Where do we go when I'm tempted? The second question is, how is that working for us? Guys, let me turn it on the church. We've been doing this church model in, the, in, in North America for about, eh, about 30 years, since the mid-80s. The big show, right? The big show. Get the charismatic speaker and we got the band and we got the big show, right? You sit back, let us entertain you for an you know, hour, hour and a half. If you're, you know, we don't wanna push you too far because it might interrupt some other things, but we just get you for that hour and we give you the big show, right? How has that worked for Christianity in North America? I'll tell you how it's worked. We're getting smaller and smaller and smaller. We're becoming more and more irrelevant in the society around us. It's not working. You know why? Because Jesus didn't tell us to build big churches. He told us to make disciples, baptize, and teach. And we've been doing it our way for decades, and it's not working. It's not working. How is it going for us? It's not going well. It's not going well. So where are we looking for answers? How is that working out for us? And guys, here's where the rubber's gonna meet the road. What are you and I doing to change it? Man, this school system's just falling apart. Okay, what are you doing about it? Join the PTO, get involved, start volunteering, start serving. Start asking for God to put people in your pathway that you can pour into and invest in. What are we doing to change it? Here's what we do, we blame shift. Reason my finances are a wreck is it's the government. It's not because I don't know how to budget, it's the government's fault. You know, whose, you know whose responsibility your finances are? Yours. Be a good steward to the Lord and be a good steward with all the things he's given you. Well, it's someone else's fault that my marriage has fallen apart. No, your marriage is your responsibility. Is it a godly marriage? Do you walk together with your wife or your husband? Do you pray together? Do you read the word together? Your family falling apart. 
When are we going to step up and quit depending on the government to fix us or the schools to pray for our children? Guys, the schools don't need to pray for your kids. You need to pray for your kids. I don't need to teach your kids theology. You need to teach your kids theology. You need to read the word to your kids. It's not my job to raise your kids. It's not my job to teach all of you the Bible all the time. That's what I do up here, but it is up to you to take that knowledge and to dig deeper. If you're just dependent on me, you're only gonna get one chapter out of me a week. That's not enough. When are we gonna take ownership? When are we gonna stop blame shifting it and putting on everyone else and say, I've got to step up. I've got to step up. What are we doing to change it? Let's dig even deeper. Why are you here right now? Again, I'm just gonna, guys, I'm just being honest with you. I told you, I'm gonna be honest. A lot of the people's mindset that comes to church is, we think we can live like hell for six days. Then we can come in, Corey can give us something encouraging. Not today though, right? Give us something encouraging. We can take communion and I can live like hell for another six days. I'm not trying to be a jerk, guys. But man, that's what a lot of us do. We think coming to church is gonna save our souls. And that's not. We think just believing. We think because we're third generation this, or I was raised, or I go to church every week, I tithe, I give. So many of us, God, and I hope it's not the case with our church, so many of us are gonna get in front of the Father and we're gonna say, Jesus, we did all these things in your name, and he's gonna say, but we never knew each other. Why are you here? Because we're a cool church, so you can just get your, your you know, check it off for the week. You're here because a boy or a girl or because your wife drags you. Well, that's a whole other topic I'd like to talk about sometime. Men are called to be the ones that lead their family spiritual, not the wives all the time. The Bible says men do that. Real men. Why are you here? Let me ask you this. Why do you believe? If a stranger walks up to you in the street and says, hey, Corey, why do you believe in a God that you've never seen with your own two eyes? What do I say? I can tell them that the first week of August of 2002, that the Lord put me down on my face in a man's office and that I felt the Holy Spirit zap through me like lightning. I can tell them that story. I can tell them that I bust open the Bible. And as I started reading this and applying this book to my life, every principle that this, thing, that this, that this word says, when I put it into action in my life, these things make sense. They work. But what do you say when people ask you, why do you believe? Why do you believe? If you're in here and you don't believe, why? Have you looked into the truth? I don't believe in the Bible. Have you read it? Have you read it? I've met very few people who've read this thing cover to cover and they don't believe. Let's go a little bit further. When, 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 when are we going to quit putting it off? And when are we going to take this whole Christian thing seriously? Man, the Lord's doing something to me, guys. And I'll tell you what it is. I'll tell you what, and, and, and Kyle, man, I, uh, I kind of pushed him and, and he's gonna do it too, so I'm gonna speak for him. I got up here at the vision service and I told you guys, you guys gotta be in community. You gotta have people around you. You have to have accountability. You need to be pouring into the next generation. You guys gotta do this, right? We gotta be in small groups. We gotta walk life out together. 
And I'm gonna confess something to you guys. I haven't done it. I haven't done it. I've never been in a small group and I've never led one. I haven't done it. You know what that makes me? A hypocrite. Man, and the Lord's been working on me. So I talked to my wife the other day and I said, hey, we have literally hundreds and hundreds of college students at our church and we have about six small groups right now, but we have tons of them that are on a waiting list. Isn't that sad? A waiting list because we don't have enough small group leaders for college students. So my wife's washing dishes the other night and I kind of drop it on her. I'm like, hey, what if we invited 12 students? I handpicked 12 students, 20-somethings. We invite them to our house, we give them two semesters and I just, <laughs> I just wear them out. <laughs> I give them my cell phone number, I tell them to call me, we hold each other accountable, we pray in our house, we give them two semesters, and we just dig into them. And then we say, go, go. What if we do that? <laughs> My wife, who's so much more spiritual than me, she's washing the dishes and she just goes, okay. <laughs> I was like, okay. And so I came up to Kyle the other day, we were in the prayer room right before service, dropped it on him right before service. I said, hey, I'm going to do this. You should do it too. And he goes, okay, let me talk to Rachel. And then right as I walked up here, he goes, hey, Rachel's in. We're going to do it too. Now listen, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to push you to do it. Everyone in this room, you need to pray, and we're going to pray. You need to pray that God sends you, even if it's only three people. Jesus had his 12, but he had his three too, his tight ones. You need to pray that God puts some people in your life. And guys, time is too short. And I don't know when Jesus is going to come back. I'm not one of those people, right? You know, he's going to come back on Tuesday, 2017. You know, like, I don't, I don't know. But I know that there's a lot of broken people. And if we don't start being the salt and light, if I don't start digging in, but guys, I don't have time, you're never going to have the time. You have to make the time. Everyone on planet Earth has the exact same amount of hours a day. And we've got to be better stewards with that time. I've got to take responsibility. I have no right to criticize the 20-somethings of our church if I'm not pouring into the 20-somethings at our church. I have no right. Here's what we're going to do. It is 1230. Um... It's a big crowd. I can't possibly do this for everyone. Uh, a couple of my elders, a couple of my leaders, if you will come up here, we're going to do it right up here in the front. Um, any of the leaders in the church, any of the elders in the church, you're welcome to come on up. Dave up here, who leads a group. Josh, who's involved in a group. Steve, who leads a group. Um, and your spouses are welcome to come too if they're in the room. Keith leads a home group. Hey, listen, here's what we're going to do. If you feel led, and I'm not talking about just starting small groups. If you're, guys, if you're feeling what I'm feeling, man, is anyone else ready for a change? Seriously. Are we happy with the way things are going? Are we ready to like get deep? Are we ready to know God on an intimate level? And are we ready to pull other people with this? Man, we cannot keep criticizing culture if we're not involved, if we're not engaged. So listen, there's, there's, a, there's a bunch of us up here, Okay. We'll form lines at every single person. And it may take us a while. God forbid, we, you, know, like you won't be able to eat lunch as soon. It'll be okay. But these men and women are going to pray, and here's what we're going to pray. 
If you're feeling it like I'm feeling it, that it's time to start getting to work, discipling people, walking with people, loving people, taking people out to dinner, lunch, doing Bible studies together, getting involved in home groups, life groups, whatever. You may not know how yet, but if you'll come up here, I would like these men and women to just pray for you and pray for God's blessing over you and pray that God gives you the people that you need to lead and mentor and walk with. Or if you need to be led or mentored or walk with it, that maybe some of these people have groups that you can get involved in. And we're going to pray. Let me pray for you real quick, and then I'm going to invite you up. Lord Jesus, Father God, I love you. You're, you're doing something with us, with me, with this church, with probably a lot of people who can hear me right now, God. There's probably a lot of people out here right now who are like, finally, we're going to do this. And God, I'm sorry that it took me so long to get on board. Forgive me. But Lord Jesus, we've got to start making disciples. We've got to start pouring into people. We've got to start loving people and serving people and walking with people. We've got to start equipping people. Because Lord, there's a lot of brokenness out there. We've got to take responsibility. We've got to take ownership. Lord Jesus, God, as we take communion today, and everyone in this room, you're welcome to take communion as long as you've asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins. It's at all the tables all around the room. As we take communion today, God, Lord, let us remember, Lord, what you've done for us. We thank you, God, and we love you. If there's anyone in this room who's a non-believer, we just pray. And, and God, I thank you so much for them being here. If you're a non-believer in here, if you're looking for the truth, if you will ask God, you may not even believe in God, but if you'll have the courage to say, God, if you're up there, reveal yourself. I believe that if you're genuinely looking for the truth, some way God's gonna show himself to you. Now listen, as your heads are still bowed and your eyes are closed, all these people up here, it may take a minute, but line up with any of them and I'll be in the middle, okay? And don't everyone come to me. Make sure you go to different people. And we're all gonna pray and we're going to commission you. And even though you're not perfect, even though you don't know every single word of the Bible, it's okay. We're going to commission you to go out and to spread the love of Christ and to pour into people. Okay? Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you. We praise you, God. Walk with us today, God, and help us, Lord. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys are welcome to help yourself to communion or find a line where you want to get prayed for.